Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Galatians 5. Verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. Please be seated. Again, it's such a blessing to see you today to join us in the gathering of God's people on this Sunday morning. I'm very, very thankful for each one of you who do choose to attend, and as we work through the immeasurable riches of Christ, I trust that the Spirit of God is using the Word of God and encouraging you in your Christian faith, that He's deepening your thoughts concerning the gospel. One of the advantages that we have in our series, The Immeasurable Riches of Christ, is unique in that we are taking our time to absorb the gospel in greater degree. Uh, We often take for granted that which we become familiar with, but the gospel is something that is ever-expanding as we study the Word of God. And often we rush through our activities without actually seeing or hearing what is done or said. When I'm in conversation with people, I'm often accused of not listening. When a gathering like that, that problem is accidented and escalated. It is for this reason uh, we wish to make clarification from week to week. It's always exciting to hear that people are having these conversations in their homes And they ask me the questions that are being asked, and I enjoy trying to answer those. We want you to know that as a fellowship, we are Christ-exalting. We are word-centered, grace-based. We are global-impacting. And we want you to know this Jesus of which the Bible speaks. So I want to bring some clarity from last week. Uh, Hopefully, you don't tire of that clarification. My desire is not to preach two studies or two sermons on a Sunday morning. If necessary, I will. And so I thank you for showing up each week. But I do enjoy clarifying what was said and expanding on it. And part of our problem in, on a Sunday morning is we cannot say all that needs to be said. So we speak in bite-sized pizzas, but I enjoy bringing some clarification. I make these uh, notations, but I typically have to edit them out. Uh, but this gives me opportunity, and I am doing that today. When you talk about the law, let's go back to the law, and it does dovetail with what we do today. Last week was, we're not under the law, but we're not lawless. So what are we under? 
Well, under grace, we are under the new way of the Spirit. We are under the law of the Spirit of life. And that's really our primary study this morning. But when we talk about the law, what we often do is that we cut the Old Testament law into manageable pieces. We often speak of the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral aspects of the law. That law is the law of Moses. But for a Jew or for a reader of the Bible, the law itself is indivisible. It's undividable. You think of Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, and James chapter 2, verse 10. It says, if you offended one point, you are guilty of all. The law is undividable, so for the sake of study, we speak of the civil, the ceremonial, or the moral aspects of the law. We often refer to, when I say we, not me, but you'll often hear people speak of the first or second or third use of the law. In that context, the first use of the law is that it's a mirror. It reveals how fallen you are. The second use is guardrail. It controls. It keeps pagan people in check, in control. When you hear this idea of a third use of the law, it's looking to the law as a compass or a guide. All of those terms or categories are ways people understand law. But when you talk about the law of Moses, it's undividable. You cannot cut it up. It's either all in or all out. But you cannot pick or choose which aspects of the law you're going to keep. So when we speak of the law and that we're not under the law, we're not under the law of Moses. We're not under the law of Moses. The law of Moses was an undividable law. You either kept all of it or none of it. And if you violated it in one point, you were guilty of the whole thing. And when the New Testament speaks of you are no longer under the law, that's the law that you are no longer under. You're not under the law, you're under grace. And Romans chapter 7 verse 6 and Romans chapter 8 verse 2 speaks of this new way, the new covenant, as the new way of the Spirit. And that's really what we will be addressing in our study this morning. The second thing about the law that you have to understand, the law of Moses, that you and I need to understand, is that the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, was Israel's constitution. When they left Egypt, they left as slaves. They were governed by Egyptian law. When they left Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, God gave that people a constitution. That constitution is the law of Moses. On the eve of entering Canaan, they were about to enter the land of Canaan in the, in the conquest, and they were entering into a land that had their own laws, their own constitution. So God, on the eve of that conquest, reiterated their law. But that law is their constitution. I am an American. Woo! Okay, I'm an American. I am governed by the laws of this land, by the Constitution. I am not at liberty to pick or choose which laws I want to obey. I am not under Canada's charter. I am not under their Constitution. Their Constitution, their charter has no jurisdiction or authority over me, does it? None. Now, when does Canada's charter or Constitution have authority over me only when I go to Canada. And when I go to Canada, I cannot pick or choose which laws in Canada I'm going to obey. But I'm not in Canada. I am in America, and as such, I obey American law. I am no longer under the law of Moses. It has no authority over me. It doesn't control me. What controls me is the new way of the Spirit. What controls me is grace. 
that law has no authority over me unless I choose to go under it. But if I go under it, I'm not at liberty to pick or choose which laws I'm going to obey. But we as new covenant, new covenant believers are under the new covenant. And the new covenant is the new way of the spirit. So we cannot pick or choose which ones we are going to obey. Another area of clarification. So first we've talked about that the law itself is undividable. Even though we assign categories such as civil, ceremonial, and moral, it's really a whole and you cannot pick or choose which aspects of the law of Moses you're going to keep. Secondly, because it was their constitution, it has no authority over me as a new covenant, New Testament believer. Testament and covenant mean the same thing. I am under a different law. I am under the new way of the Spirit. I am under the law of the Spirit of life. Romans chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 8, verse 2. A third thing, hopefully for clarification and not confusion, and perhaps I'm going to cause more questions than answer, but hopefully we understand this. When you talk about the law of Moses, you have three laws, as it were. You have the law of Moses, that's the big L, Then you have the lowercase law. Those are the laws of this land, the laws of the state, the laws of this country. And then you have what Romans chapter 14, 1 called disputable matters. And often when you say that you're no longer under law, the question is, am I then lawless? Can I do whatever I want? Can I go around and violate the lowercase laws of this land? And my response to you was, would be, yes, you can violate the lowercase laws of this land, but what will happen if you do? You will pay the consequences of violating the lowercase laws. But when you talk about the law of Moses, we're not under the law of Moses. Then you talk about lowercase law, the laws that govern this state or country, and then what are called disputable matters. The lowercase laws are those governing our land. You obey the law of the state and nation until you can't. And as Christians, at some point, we say no. But by saying no, we face the consequences of violating the laws of the state or nation. And there are also the issues of conscience or what the scriptures call disputable matters. Disputable matters are the various values or taboos each section of God's people seem to develop in their own construct of what constitutes personal holiness. So in summary, when you think of this, and I I hope that there's some clarity, you might now have more questions than answers, but when we say you're not under the law, you're not under the law of Moses, and you're not Uh, You are not in a position to pick or choose which laws you obey. You just are not under that because you're not in that country. You are in a new country, one that's reigned by grace. And then you have the lowercase laws, and then you have disputable matters. So the new covenant believer, you and I, as the people of God, are not under Israel's constitution. As it relates to man-made laws governing our orderly society, the believer obeys as far as Scripture allows them. There is a hard stop at some point. Unfortunately, when we think of all this, it's not as simple as we'd like to make it. It becomes confusing where the Scripture is not clear and it bleeds into disputable matters or matters of conscience. An example of this, we've just lived through an example of this issue. And one of the issues was whether one would or would not wear a mask or whether one would take the shot or not during COVID-19 pandemic. And such decisions as whether you would or would not, and I I hope we're comfortable. No one's getting overly defensive. Matters of conscience are binding for you and for you alone. 
Your standards on disputable matters are uh, biblical. I grew up in a context as a Christian where women could not wear pants. They could not wear shorts above their knees. They wore culottes. Uh, guys had to have, they could not have beards. You know, I rebelled against all that. Uh, they could not have wired rimmed glasses. Their hair could not touch their collar. Uh, those were all ways of measuring personal holiness of how far you are in your sanctification. But matters of conscience are binding for you and for you alone. Uh, the problem I had for my past is that we wanted everyone else to fall under our standard. Your standards on disputable matters are unbiblical. They're outside of Scripture. Disputable matters through time, unfortunately, are often assigned biblical weight. But they do not have biblical authority apart from your personal conscience. Such matters bind you, but they do not bind the church. And this area deserves, obviously, its own study, but not right now. So when we talk about the law, we have the law of Moses, we have the lowercase laws of the land, and then we have disputable matters. When the scripture speaks, you are no longer under the law. The law being referenced is the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is an undividable entity. It's their constitution. It's not ours. If I am a Jew and I was in that context, I would be under all of it. But I am not under the law because I'm not in that context. I am now under grace. And that's very clear from the scripture. Now, before we jump into the Christian and the Holy Spirit, because one of the questions we then ask is, if we are not under the law, are we lawless? And if the law is not operating in our lives, what's keeping us in righteousness or in holiness, in right living? So before we jump into that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful that you are and have what we need, and we bring ourselves to you this morning. Thank you that your designed plan worked through the nation of Israel to bring us Scripture and the promised seed. Thank you for Jesus from the tribe of Judah, the son of David. Thank you that in Christ we are under a new covenant, a new testament. Thank you that as new covenant believers we live in the new way of the Spirit. It is overwhelming to think that right now we are filled by your Spirit he indwells us, and we are the indwelling place for you. Help us to see how his very presence wars against all idolized appetites that take us away from you. Help us to see how we are holy and thus live holy lives. May we always be decreasing, and may Jesus alone be increasing. May we not define our relationship to the Holy Spirit by our feelings or experiences, but may we rest in the sure word of God and by faith claim what is rightfully and already ours. Guide us in these moments. May our hearts be open. May our eyes see. And may our ears hear the sweet voice of the Spirit. We thank you ahead of time for what we believe will happen. Until Jesus comes, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, we read Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 26. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and chapter 6, verse 15, which we considered last week, the Apostle Paul asks two questions. Both are raised by his audience. He follows a simple pattern. There's a principle that's stated, for example, or by way of the tax, the principle is this, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Romans chapter 5, verse 21. In chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, We are no longer under the law, 
but under grace. So he states the principle. He then asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then verse 15 of chapter 6, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Those are the natural questions coming out of the principle. And then he gives this rhetorical response. Well, God forbid, in chapter 6, verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then chapter 6, verse 16, by no means, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So one of the primary points from our previous study is this. Although we are no longer under the law, and hopefully we brought some clarity to that idea, does this mean we are lawless? Well, Paul would respond with an emphatic, no, not at all. As Christians, that's who we are, we are citizens of another country under a new law. And before moving forward, let us remember how Romans 7 teaches us that we have died to the law, we have been raised with Christ, and that as believers, we are married to Christ. We are in union with Him. And, and by the way, and one of the things that I hope to stress, and one of the things that impressed me with the study is this, our union with Christ matters. The fact that right now, right now, you are indwelt by the Spirit, you are filled with the Spirit, that matters. I was impressed with that all week. We have that idea locked in our heads as true, but it really doesn't matter in the way we live our lives. And I'm saying, well, it does matter. We are united with Christ. The Father sees us in Him. We have, right now, each of us, have the indwelling Spirit. Isn't that incredible? We are filled by the Spirit. And that's amazing. So this marriage, this union to Christ sets us on a new path under a new law. Paul calls it in chapter 7, verse 6, the new way of the Spirit. And in chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life. And our desire is to really focus on the idea of the new way of the Spirit. And for some reason, when we think of this idea, for some reason, we relegate the Holy Spirit to emotion or to feeling. And if I were to ask you, do you feel the Spirit's presence in you? Overall, we would say, not really. But how you feel about the matter doesn't really matter. What matters is the truth. Thus, the relationship the Holy Spirit has to His people is true, even if it isn't felt. However, the truth should not be assumed or ignored. Even though we cannot feel him, even though we don't necessarily experience him on a regular basis, we should not assume or ignore. It's something that we should understand and celebrate. And without the Holy Spirit, there is no Christian life. If right now the Holy Spirit vacated this auditorium and he removed his presence from you, you would have no Christian life. So when we talk about the Spirit and His indwelling or filling, that is what defines the Christian life. He is the righteousness of God given to us, working in us and through us to those around us. In His absence, there is no righteous living. The life described 
of the believing in the New Testament is his life. And while there is a degree of divine mystery, because we ask ourselves the question, well, I know it's true. Why? Because of the scripture. But where do I go with that? Well, there is mystery to the nature of the Holy Spirit. He definitely is not a bundle of warm feelings or good memories. And that's how we often define his working. We like that spiritual high that certain things offer us. And we think in that moment, he is present and working. And I'm telling you right now in the mundane and routine, he is present and he's working. We can be confident of that. You know, I can no more explain the Holy Spirit coming upon a virgin and causing her to be with child. If you've looked at the incarnation, you cannot fully understand the mystery that exists behind it. So I can no more explain the Holy Spirit coming upon a virgin and causing her to be with child than I can explain how the Holy Spirit lives in you and works through you His righteousness. But I cannot and will not deny either reality, either reality. I believe in the incarnation and I believe in the indwelling Holy Spirit who works in you and through you to those around you. And why is it then, when you talk about the law versus under grace, and remember the scripture creates those categories. You are not under the law, but you're under grace. You're not under the law, but the new way of the spirit. And why do we find the rules and regulations of the law more attractive than the new way of the spirit? I believe it is because the law is what we know and is definable and concrete, whereas the new way of the Spirit is new and relatively unknown. So unless you study the Scripture, the New Testament, the new way of the Spirit seems abstract, and it is new. But I argue that the law is conditional and synergistic. You look at the law, it gives you a list of things that you're supposed to do, and it gives you a list of things that you're not supposed to do, the Mosaic Law, and it is synergistic, you do it, versus the Spirit, which is unconditional. He is working in and through you, and it's monergistic, which is the work of one. He works, and His work is animating you, but He works in the new way of the Spirit. He does the work, and that work is immutable and unstoppable. The Apostle Paul addresses this idea in his letter to the Galatians, and that, was what, and that is what we're looking at in Galatians chapter 5, but Working in tandem to Galatians 5 are Romans chapters 6 and 8. We don't have enough time to look at 6, 8, and Galatians 5. I've made reference to them, but we'll focus on Galatians 5, and we'll also note Ephesians 5 as well. Now, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, when you think of what we have in Christ, is, it's part of this immeasurable riches of Christ. When you think of the unfathomable, unsearchable riches of Christ, one of the consequences of Jesus is that you are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I am filled with the Spirit. Now, my filling isn't like, woo, you know, like crazy stuff. It can be. Uh, that's part personality. But I am filled with the Spirit. I'm indwelt by the Spirit. How do I know that? Well, because the Scripture says so. And it's not based on my feeling, my emotion, my experience. It's based on the truth of Scripture. The Scripture declares such is true. And without an understanding of what forces are at work within you, see, right now the Spirit of God is in you. Right now the Spirit is working. 
It is impossible to rest in the finished work of Jesus and his ongoing advocacy for you. You can rest. You can rest. Paul very appropriately describes the conflict in the two opposing sides as under the law and under grace. The intent of this lesson, the study, is to offer us four ideas and unpack what it means, the new way of the Spirit. The first is this, and we see it right away, is that the new way of the Spirit, no matter what we do with it, the new way of the Spirit is different than the old way of the law. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, But if you are led by the Spirit, and the assumption being made by the if is this, Do you know Jesus as your Savior from sin and death? If you know Jesus as your Savior from sin and death, then you are led by the Spirit, and you are therefore no longer under the law. That's the condition. The condition is, do you know Jesus? And if you know Jesus, you are led by the Spirit, and if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. That's the contrast. You see the same thing in chapter 5, verse 23, gentleness, self-control against such things... There is no law. That doesn't mean you are lawless. It does mean that you are under the new way of the Spirit. You'll remember Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Listen carefully. But now we are released from the law. Why? Because we have died to the law. We are now in union with Christ. We are married to Christ. It is an intimate, personal relationship. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, the two contrasts taking place, and not in the old way of the written code. Folks, we are not under the law of Moses. We are not under that vassal treaty. We are under a different law, and it is the new way of the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, because we're not under the law of Moses. We do not live in violation of it. For those who are in Christ Jesus, our union with Christ causes conformity. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Thus, the contrast. Those two are in contrast. What has been Paul's point in Romans and Galatians? As a believer, you are no longer under the law. The law cannot make you a member of God's covenant community. The law can't do that. The Spirit does. And the law cannot keep you in the covenant community. The Spirit does. And why does he make such a claim? It is because you are being led by and bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you are in the new way of the Spirit. Now, I do find it amazing that we think a written law, we think the law is more powerful, more powerful in prohibiting sin and promoting godliness than the Holy Spirit. We think, well, if we remove ourselves from that law, what's going to keep us from sinning? What's going to push us towards righteousness? Paul's argument is, what the law cannot do, Jesus does. The new way of the Spirit pushes us in the path of righteousness. And I ask myself, well, what would I rather have working for me? The law, a dead letter, or the living spirit? Galatians chapter 3, 1 through 5, Paul makes the statement, and I never know how the people who oppose the idea would answer the question. But he writes in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you, 
Only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Obviously, it was by faith, not by the works of the law. Then he says another statement. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by the works of the law? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And then finally, in verse 5, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul makes this strong contrast between the works of the law and faith in Christ, the new way of the Spirit. Throughout Galatians, Paul's fighting against those who would bring the gospel back under the law. That's his struggle. Jesus would say, you cannot put new wine in an old wineskin. The author of Hebrews says it this way. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, that first covenant, the law of Moses, obsolete. It's wearing out, it's decaying. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. We are no longer under the law. When you and I think of the law of Moses and the new way of the Spirit, we must understand there is no synthesis between law and gospel. We are always trying to merge those two ideas. There is no synthesis. The two are complementary because they are both part of the one story, but not commingling. And that's really what we must guard against, commingling the two ideas. And one of the challenges that we face when we look at this idea from last week and and now, is this. If we are not bound by the law, you know, if we're not going to be following the law of Moses, what binds us in righteousness? I mean, what if that isn't, what is? And I think that's a legitimate question. It's a question that the Apostle Paul had to continue to answer. So when we think of the new way of the Spirit, it is somehow different than the old law. And we do have to answer that question. So Paul then answers the question, if we are not bound by the law, what binds us in righteousness? Well, the new way of the Spirit is being filled with the new way of the Spirit is being filled with the Spirit. The text here is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and there's always the ability to expand on every point, but I'm going to make the statement that the new way of the Spirit is being filled by the Spirit the indwelling Spirit. It's what you and I enjoy as the people of God. We are regenerated by the Spirit. We are baptized by the Spirit. We are filled by the Spirit, that order. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, and do not be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled with wine. If you've ever been around someone who is absolutely drunk, they are controlled by alcohol. They are controlled by that wine. For that is dissipation. But be filled, be controlled with the Spirit. So there's a context, uh, uh, contrasting ideas. Uh, be not unwise, but be wise. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is His indwelling in the believer. The Holy Spirit is, is right now in you. And that Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Like wine, with one who is drunk, the wine controls the individual, so also the Holy Spirit. He controls the object he fills. And I'm going to hammer on this as we go through this particular point. Like wine with one who is drunk, the wine controls the individual, so also the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit controls the object he fills. 
The Gospel of John makes much of this. In John chapter 4, with the woman at the well, Jesus is talking with her, and she's talking physical water. He's talking spiritual water. And in verse 14, he makes the statement, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Springing up, overflowing the vessel. And during Passover, in John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus says, From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we spoke of something in John's gospel that was still yet future, but that's what you and I now as the people of God enjoy. Notice the verses. 1 Corinthians 3.16, chapter 6, verse 19, 2 Corinthians 6.16. 2 Timothy 1.14, Romans 8.11, and then the extended passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. All of these verses speak of the Spirit indwelling the believer. Some use the plural, but they all include the singular. And not all of these are referring to us as individuals, and most are referring to the corporate. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, and He is here in our midst, But there is no corporate gathering without the individual. And we really need to come to grips with this idea that we are united with Christ and we are filled and indwelt by the Spirit. I find this somewhat compelling because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, you have the language of God's household, the whole building, into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't an apartment dweller. He's not renting space in you. He isn't a renter. He's a homeowner. Think about the difference. He owns the home. We have an indwelling spirit. He fills us and he owns us. We are his. He stewards the home. He takes care of the home. And this is how proactive the Holy Spirit is. This filling is the result of his baptism and is the result of his regenerating the believer. So because I am saved, I've been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, and I am now filled or indwelt by that Spirit. And because because the infinite, the infinite God enters the finite, there is this overflow. What does the overflow look like? And that's where we walk into Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. It describes the overflow. As a consequence of the filling, this is what it looks like. Now, there's a multiplicity of passages that we could turn to to see the overflow. When Paul writes a letter, he always speaks of what we are. This is who you are. And then in the latter part of the letter, he talks about the do. The do is the overflow. It's what filling looks like. It's when the infinite enters the finite, you have the overflow. And Galatians 5, 16 through 26 describe for us The overflow. Notice the following statements within this paragraph. If you're looking at Galatians chapter 5, it it uses all of these, what I believe to be, synonyms. In verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. In verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, and then it says we will be led by the Spirit, will be in step with the Spirit. 
I am of the opinion that the walking and the leading and the fruit and the living are synonymous in the paragraph. Now think if they're not. It means that you could be led by the Spirit, but not living in the Spirit. You could be walking in the Spirit, but not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So I am of the opinion that everything in Galatians 5 is, is a working synonym. They're working synonyms. They're describing the same thing. As a consequence of filling, I am walking. As a consequence of filling, I am bearing the fruit of. As a consequence of filling, I am being led by. As a consequence of filling, I am in step with the Spirit. And if they are not synonymous, then you could have one without the other. And for me, that is a problem. And there is nothing in the passage, and this is what is interesting when you look at the commentary, there is nothing in the passage suggesting any condition apart from new birth. Some people will say, well, as you yield, as you surrender, but that's not what's here in this text or in the book of Galatians. Believers, because of their union with Christ, because I am united with Christ, and because I have the indwelling Spirit, because I am filled with the Spirit, as a consequence of that filling and its overflow in and through this finite vessel, I am being led by and walking by and bearing the fruit of and living by the Spirit. Now, the Spirit-filled and Spirit-driven life is the fruit of the gospel. This is one of the immeasurable riches of Christ. It is nothing we can work for but from. And I always find this interesting, but our wondering, if I walked up to you and I asked you the question, apart from this study, hey man, are you filled with the Spirit? Are you walking by the Spirit? Are you living in the Spirit? Are you being led by the Spirit? You'd begin to check whether or not your behavior has aligned with your preconceived ideas of what would cause you to be walking, led, living, filled, fruity. Okay, that, that's what would happen. But you are, because of the immeasurable riches of Christ, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so our wondering whether or not we are Spirit-filled should give way to wonderment at being Spirit-filled. Rather than wondering, and there was this pivotal moment in my life years ago when I left the question, am I filled, and began to realize I am filled. Instead of wondering, I fell into wonderment. God is filling this? Yes. He's indwelling this? Yes. And he's not a renter occupying a room. He owns this. This is his. He controls it. He's the one who animates the Christian life. This is what the gospel produces in and through his people. And this is one of the beautiful riches of Christ. And the indwelling overflows into righteous acts. That's why Paul can say, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And all the problems found in Galatians 5, 13 through 15 find resolution in the new way of the Spirit. Now, from this, we see a third element or consequence of the indwelling, of the filling. Not only is the new way of the Spirit different than the old way of the law, not only is the new way of the Spirit being filled with the Spirit, He indwells us, but a third aspect of this from the text, Galatians 5, is that the new way of the Spirit wars against the desires of the flesh. Think about what this passage is saying, and this is where we struggle. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. The two are diametrically opposed. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 24. Notice what Paul states in Galatians 5. These two elements are so diametrically opposed to each other that to be in the one automatically excludes the other. After the introduction of the commands, he then uses the double negative. And he says, those who are walking in the Spirit are no never fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. In fact, if you look at Galatians 5, again, if you're there in your Bibles, I'll read it for you. But notice he lists the works of the flesh. And this is going to be a point I'll make in a moment. But notice at the end of verse 18, it says, if you are led by the Spirit and you are if you're saved, since you are led by the Spirit, I'm talking to you, you are no longer under the law. Now notice what he does. You are no longer under the law, and the works of the law, this is what it looks like. And he names the sins, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And notice what he concludes. And right now you might be thinking to yourself, self, have I committed any of those sins? Has my vessel, has my body exercised itself in any of the works of the flesh. And notice what he concludes. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will what? You won't inherit the kingdom. Hey, that ought to scare the eebie-jeebies out of you if you're not reading this right. Because, man, I'm telling you, you are guilty. You are guilty. And it says if you are guilty... You won't inherit the kingdom. So what does this mean? And that's what we're after. Because the new way of the Spirit does what? The new way of the Spirit causes the fruit of the Spirit for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, the law has no place. What do we do with this? Because Paul says that the one who does such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The struggle we have inside the text is between the subjective experience, our own personal struggles, and the objective truth, what God's Word says is true. And that's what we are wrestling with this morning. Are you indwelt by the Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? I'm not asking you how you feel. I'm asking you, do you believe the text? What is true? And we struggle because we look at that list and we think, well, somehow I have to spin this in such a way that I don't fall into that category. I want to be over there. I don't want to be over there. We know what we feel. Paul calls us to know and believe this isn't true because of how you feel or think or act. It is true because the Word of God says it is true. What is our defense against the war waged against our souls? It's the new way of the Spirit. We'll consider next week how the Spirit wages war against the flesh. But in this study, we need to know and believe that He is indwelling His people and that indwelling, that filling is efficacious. It is powerful. He stops the desires of the flesh from being gratified. It doesn't mean they are not there, but it does mean we are not giving ourselves over to their gratification. If I could take you to 1 John chapter 3, I'm not going to. And even in this text, it says the same thing. 
the verbs being used are called present active participles. And the present active participle simply says, is this marking your life? And there is a difference between a pattern and a point. You and I as believers have point in time sins. The unbeliever is a pattern of sin. They are practicing sin. And I'll talk about idolatry and addiction in just a moment. But the Apostle Paul is clear. He picks up what John says in 1 John chapter 3. They are saying the same thing. What is interesting is that this is not something the law did or could do. The law could not stop them. And the law never did this. When you read the story of the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, it becomes apparent that the law did not have the power to fight against the gratifying of the flesh. They were always committing everything described as a work of the flesh. Paul clearly says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, that the law has no power over sin. Verse 23, Paul writes in Colossians 2, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and he's talking about law and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So how do we fight against the sins of the flesh? By the new way of the spirit. If you think you're going to win by applying law, you lose. The law is powerless against the works of the flesh. Now, Galatians chapter 5, verse 18 makes the statement, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh. And I find this interesting in Paul's argument. In Galatians 5, 18, he has working synonyms and contrasts. If you are under the law, it's the works of the flesh. If you are under grace, it's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the picture of contrasts being used in Galatians 5. By walking in the Spirit, you will not be characterized by sin. If you are walking in the Spirit, the pattern of your life is sun-marked, not sin-marked. So right now when I look at you, what do I see? I see righteousness. I see holiness. Do I think you right now in the horizontal are perfect in everything you do? No. And what do I believe is the answer to that pursuit? Not law, but grace. Not the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. The new way of the Spirit. When you read Galatians chapter 5, it says that in verse 16, I walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires or the lusts of the flesh. And I've wrestled with this because I've asked myself the question, what are these lusts? We often default to some kind of sexual sin. Well, lust, the category of lust, falls into sexual sin. But the lusts are described for us in verses 19 to 21, the works of the flesh. And it has this description, and those lusts can be cataloged in three categories. Sins of immorality. Sins of idolatry, sins of animosity. And what's interesting about the description is this. And things like these, it's not an exhaustive listing, it's suggestive. And I would say to you, if you begin comparing yourself against that, you're going to have difficulty. But you fight against that. That's what the Spirit of God wars against. All of those categories are lusts. All of them. We lust after security. We lust after popularity. We lust after acceptance. We lust after sensual gratification. We lust after power. We lust after presence. Whatever the appetite, we all have these appetites in the horizontal. 
Whatever the appetite, we make it an idol and then we bow down before it. We bring it offerings. How do we feed this thing? We bring offerings of time and financial investment and loyalty. We invest in all these things, all these appetites. And as we slowly feed that beast, it gets so hungry that it overtakes us. Soon we are addicted and the only, only the gospel can break this cycle of bondage. Idolatry and addiction happen when we try to fill vertical longings with horizontal appetites and idols. And that is what the Spirit of God wars against. We don't do that. As a Christian, we are walking, being led, and bearing fruit, and living in the Spirit. And because of that indwelling, we are not practicing sin. That's 1 John 3, 4 through 10. The tense usage is important. And that struggle is constant. Galatians 5, 17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Fallen flesh is the adversary of the Spirit. It's because of this truth that we conclude our flesh is non-redeemable. You can't fix flesh. And our new man, the new way of the Spirit is non-corruptible. It's the same language of Romans 7. The only answer to the struggle is Jesus, is the gospel. The flesh is such a powerful adversary that without the Spirit's intervention and empowerment, we are helpless against its forces. We must make no mistake here, the flesh is completely opposed to the Spirit. Thankfully, what we once were in Adam, we no longer are, but we still have. And what we must understand is that you can't, can't redeem the flesh. The only thing you can do with the flesh is kill it. Thankfully, Galatians chapter 3, 1 through 4, thankfully, in Christ, that flesh has been crucified. That's Galatians 5, verse 24. We have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. You cannot redeem the flesh. You can only kill the flesh. But make no mistake, grace is reigning right now. The struggle doesn't define us. Christ defines us. The last thing we see concerning the new way of the Spirit is the new way of the Spirit is personal holiness, is progressive sanctification. It says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The idea of Spirit indwelling, Spirit living, and empowerment are not subjective experiences. We do see it in the horizontal, but we might not feel it. The indwelling, the living, the empowerment are objective truth. It's what is true. That objective truth is working itself in you and through you to those around you. That working is called progressive sanctification. It's called personal holiness. Now, progressive sanctification is the theological description of the Christian life, where when we speak of personal holiness, it's the practical description of the Christian life. What is astounding to me in our quest for personal righteousness or holiness is making it a man-centered work whereby dismissing the working of the Holy Spirit given to us and we try to do what is already done. Rather than believe and rest, we add to and work for. If the Holy Spirit's work is true and I have full confidence that what God has begun, He will finish. I have full confidence that the filling of the Spirit in this finite vessel is going to overflow into righteous acts. 
that righteousness will be seen. It will be acted out. In our pursuit of personal holiness, we try to do what is already done. New Testament believers are righteous, not because of who they are or what they have done or do, but because of who he is and what he has done and does. And that's part of the immeasurable riches of his grace. Many believers, unfortunately, have lost sight of their union with Christ. You are united with Christ. That's a big deal. The indwelling Holy Spirit in their understanding of progressive sanctification of personal holiness. That's a big deal. We have tragically made progressive sanctification a decidedly performance-based means of approval and thus acceptance before the Father. Their emphasis on external conformity for religious spirituality is emphatically non-grace. They go back to the works of the law in their pursuit of personal holiness. And we have made personal holiness a public holiness. Look at me. Don't look at me. Personal holiness is Psalm 73, verses 25 to 28. It's a heart longing. We long for God. Whereas public holiness is Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus described the scribes and the Pharisees. He says they sit at Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Personal holiness focuses on Christ and his church. Public holiness is focused on appearance and opinion in the public square. One of the fruits of the Spirit, and I use fruits in the plural, one is the fruit of the Spirit and the other is a work of the flesh. The talk of personal holiness wrongly understood puts lipstick on the proverbial pig. I had opportunity to be with some of the students that I taught when they were in 7th through 12th grade. And there are things that I would, I would want to take back. And one of the things that I would want to take back is this idea of measuring personal holiness by public appearance. We would judge people all the time based on what they looked like. And I can assure you, based on my past standards, all of you would be in question. But if you get it wrong, you're simply putting lipstick on the proverbial pig. The new way of the Spirit, and this is the encouragement that we need, produces personal holiness, causing His people to love one another and serve the church. This is what it looks like. This is to be our focus. Friends, we need to be encouraged. And how? By understanding we are no longer under the law, but the new way of the Spirit. And the new way of the Spirit overflows in righteous acts. We serve one another. We serve other people. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle John wrote the statement, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Every evil spirit, every evil prophet. For he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have the victory in Christ. We live righteous lives. Go out and serve one another. And the new way of the Spirit is warring against the appetites and desires of the flesh. And it's not simply sexual sins. It's all those things. So where do we go from here? Well, again, actively place yourself in a gospel-saturated way of life. We need to eat, drink, and think gospel. Listen carefully. 
Living life in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is no more mystical or magical than breathing. That is where you are. That is where I am. Rest in that truth. Know that truth. Secondly, you are not trying to get more of the Holy Spirit, and He isn't trying to get more of you. If you are saved, He has all of you. He's the owner of that building. He controls it. You are either in Adam or in Christ, and your union with Christ is the indwelling. When you consider this incredible truth, how does the gospel inform and shape your response? We often make emotion the primary indicator of the Holy Spirit's working. This isn't true. So if I were to ask you today, or I see you next week, and I say, hey, brother, are you filled with the Spirit? What am I expecting to hear? Thank you. If you say, well, I hope so, then I'll share with you the gospel so you can get saved. Let us say you wake up and you begin the morning feeling off. I don't know if you have that experience. Uh, Sometimes I wake up and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, it's going to be a long one. And the day as it unfolds simply goes from bad to worse. You don't feel aligned with God and have no sense of the Spirit's filling. The job you work at is less than ideal. Your relationships are all problematic. Your home life is boring and it's tired. Not him again. Does this emotion and experience actually reflect the truth of your alignment with God and the outworking of the Holy Spirit? Well, of course not. Because the Bible says you are filled, you are indwelt. The Bible is what informs and God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son and the comfort of the Holy Spirit is your right your inheritance, and your starting point. Not your emotions or how you feel. You need to stop allowing your emotions, your feelings to dictate how you understand the workings of the Holy Spirit in you and through you to those around you and start resting in what is true. Think on these things. Act on those things. You can say no to sin and you can say yes to Jesus. He is in you and he is working through you to those around you. So what we see is Jesus. We see Jesus. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the gifts of regeneration, their gifts, baptism of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We would have no life without him. Help us to accept and believe what is true and then act and do joyfully. Lead us not into this temptation, but always deliver us from this evil. John told us not to sin, but we still do. Thank you for the unconditional advocacy of Jesus. This morning in celebrating the Holy Spirit, we celebrate righteousness, we celebrate goodness, we celebrate service one to another, and we celebrate decency. Cause us to look for opportunity to serve one another. May we learn new ways of civility and courtesy and politeness. May we evidence an overflow of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, how we look forward to the Spirit openly working through us. Continue to draw us near. Create for us this awareness. Father, until Jesus comes, amen.